listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, a podcast in which two nerds... <laughs> you object to that word every time. Do I every time? Every time. And here I thought I was doing like a new bit that <laughs> would be funny, but I didn't actually think of anything for the bit. So... Just new insert bit here. Yes. Yes, I'm going to record a bit later and send it to you. Oh, okay. Which is actually, gentle listener, you should sort of behind the music here, anything that we do manage to say on this podcast that's funny is either us talking for like 45 minutes and then we take out the funniest like 30 seconds of that and use it and delete all the other stuff, (laughs) or it's stuff we've thought of later recorded separately and then sent to Michael for him to splice into the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell, like I say, you can tell those ones because they're the funny ones. Right. Right. Um, no. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that's how you know. So, now that we've taught everyone how to make podcasts, uh, <laughs> I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. You didn't tell him what we do on this podcast. We talk about books. But not about... Scotch. Yeah. I had to think for a second. Because we're one episode in, I had to think whether you were trapping me. <laughs> nope, we haven't clicked the glasses for this episode yet. I, I, I so. got there. It took me long. I mean, I'm sure you'll condense the time down so I don't seem as stupid. Truncate silence. <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, uh, yeah, so. Well, after that nap that we both just had. <laughs> that was good. Good thing that whole truncate silence thing is still in effect. Yep. Um... As you know, gentle listener, if you listened to the last episode... Which and was part one, and this is part two, yeah, so if you didn't listen to that, what's wrong with you? That's what I was going to say. Also, I feel like that's a bit we do every time. Yeah, but, it is. It's true. Um, man, we should just start numbering these, and then the introductions would just be us, like, saying numbers. Like, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, Yeah. Go back and listen to part one, in which I tell you not to read the book, even though I'm about to tell you to read the book. <laughs> um, but as you know, we are drinking Lagavulin 16-year-old Isla Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Um, I feel like the last time we had an Isla on the show, we figured out how to pronounce Isla. Isla, yeah. I think we're doing pretty good with Lagavulin, as far as I know that's correct. As far as I know. So, like, eventually we'll get the other 98% of Scottish words right. Um, correct. right. So, we are both very excited about this this one, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm mm. going to... Wait, no, I can't do those both at the same time. Karen, come here and please read the rules, please. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. You said please twice. I did say please. I start out very, like, brash and, and, like, slightly uh, uh, angry sounding, and then she comes in and, like, glares at me, and then I'm put back in my place. I noticed, um, you, you know, your tail goes between your legs. You sprout a tail, and it goes between your legs. <laughs> Gentle listener, that truncated silence was brought to you by Michael deleting all of the tail-related, <laughs> non-family-friendly jokes that I <laughs> did then have to do, thanks to him. You're which welcome. doesn't seem fair. 
Uh, <laughs> but yeah, here we go. So, as you know, once we clink these glasses, the rule goes rules go into effect. You yeah, tap me off here. Merci. Uh, daily N. I had to look up how to say daily N. Um, one day when I met a French guy at the deli I was working at, uh-huh. and I told him I had taken French in high school. And then at the end of the interaction, he said merci, and I couldn't think of the word for you're, you're welcome. welcome. And it was just the worst. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be the worst. So anyway. And he thinks you're a liar. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, what five words do you learn on the first day of French oh. class? <laughs> uh, shoot, and I was trying to think of a of a French salute. I can't even do that, so I'm lying. I never, I don't even know what French is, but the closest thing I can come up with is a New Orleans one. So here's mud in your eye. Steady. I got the exact reaction I was hoping for. Uh-huh. That little sideways look of yours. <laughs> I'm sure the gentle listener is sick of us mugging to the camera here. I know, I know. Yeah. So, of course, as you know, gentle listener, I oh, have it. Michael kidnapped my copy. Yep. Um, I was admiring your margin notes. Oh, thank you. Uh, we are reading of human bound. Of Human Boundage by Somerset Mon. <laughs> Mom. Well, I, I switched Mom. the way I was doing vowels. It. it wasn't a good joke, but... It's a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay, I appreciate the acknowledgement. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we let you listen to it last... Or read it last time. I told you not to bother. I may be wavering on that, but Michael is still going to treat me like I'm hostile. Yep. Which, in fairness... Is how we treat each other all the time because it's, we are. It's true. So, yep. That said, uh, what do you wanna what do you wanna talk about? Six hundred eighty pages in this book. Surely yeah. you can think of something for us. To talk well, about. mine was shorter. Mine was five hundred and sixty-five. So. Oh man, you had to do a lot more work to get through a page. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was here. Mine's mine's the millennial edition. Right. We like to do less work per well, page. And yours has footnotes and endnotes. Mine yeah, didn't. it does. They're mostly insulting. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a it's a Barnes and Noble Classics edition, which like I have to give all Barnes... the notes are insulting. Yeah, I have to give Barnes and Noble props for like, you know, doing it. Cr- yeah, creating a- inexpensive, accessible, you know, editions of great works of literature. Um, you know, that's cool and all. Yeah. But like, you know, here just opening t- at random. He had been anxious about the reception he would have as a nouveau, and the footnote just nouveau. says "newcomer" parentheses French, like, like who's I, not I, gonna know that, or at least be able to figure it out from context? It's exactly, yeah. And then later on that same page, see if I can actually find where the where the footnote is relating to. Oh, the model threw aside the paper she had been reading, La Petite République. <laughs> and then so footnote here says as we both know it's going to say the little republic fr- a french socialist newspaper oh, oh maybe that was actually a pretty good one because it's, oh, okay. it's actually yeah, well, identifying yeah, french, that it is yeah, a french okay, socialist yeah. newspaper but 50% i just went a of... different direction <laughs> on that well you did fall right into the trap that i laid for you, you did so. thank you very much um <laughs> see well you trapped me before so i it's only fair I guess. With French, no less. Ha! Ha! And I mean, Michael is, of course, correct. La Petite Republique means Little Republic. Um, I don't know if there's, like... I feel like petite is sometimes used colloquially to to mean certain things. So I don't know if it's, like, roughly similar to, like, the way we'd use the word, like, buddy or friendly or something. Like, our friendly republic. It's, like, a, a diminutive or a... Yeah. Uh, something like that. I don't know. I'm purely speculating. But anyway, my point is 50% of the time, this Barnes & Noble edition's footnotes are very insulting. Indeed. And the other 50% is actually kind of good context. Yeah. 
Well, I didn't want to talk about the footnotes, but that's where we are. We're now. always we're always gonna if there are footnotes, we're always gonna, we're talk, gonna about talk about them. Anyway, uh, no, we're getting like, going chronologically the way we've been going so far, as um, we always do for every as episode we always of this do podcast. every every episode. We always do this. Yeah. Um, there we're we're getting to the point where he starts his travels. We we kind of touched yes. on his life in the boarding school, but then uh, he goes off on travels, and. Do you remember the first international travel he makes, the first place he lives internationally? What what town he lived in? Or what, what country? I feel like it's Germany. Germany, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you remember what town it was? Look, all the towns in Germany sound <laughs> the same. It was Heidelberg. Oh, of course. Heidelberg, Germany. Now, I want to I wanna read something to you from the foreword. Yes. Uh... He's he's talking about how this this book is semi autobiographical, but he changed things. Yes. So that it was not perfectly autobiographical. Anyway, so for instance, I sent my hero to Rouen, which I knew only as an occasional visitor to learn French, instead of to Heidelberg, where I had been myself to learn German. What did the author do in the foreword in that sentence right there, Ethan? I'm gonna say lose. <laughs> you lost. Yes. <laughs> because he lied. <laughs> Number one, Wait. he went to Heidelberg, very specifically, yes. and learned German. He never went to Rouen. Philip never went there. He went to Paris. Wait, where? what's the lie? That he sent his hero to Rouen. But it, didn't he send him there? Not to Heidelberg. In an earlier edition of the book? I don't think so. Can I see this? Because I'm pretty sure he's comparing the life of his character to the life of himself. Okay. No. He... Okay, Is that so... what he's saying? So, uh, he's talking about... He is. He's talking about an earlier edition of this book that he sent off to um, oh. Fisher and Unwin. And he says... And it got rejected. It got rejected by okay. everyone. He says, I was fortunate for if one of them had taken my book, which was called The Artistic Temperament of Stephen Carey... Nice. I should have lost a subject which was too. I was too young to make proper use of. Gotcha. Okay, I misunderstood that. I am really sorry to Ugh. douse. No, that's okay. Your Nabokov parade here. It wasn't necessarily a parade because I was just <laughs> mad at him initially, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he lies here or not. He's Fine. still a liar. He's still a liar. He's still a liar. Anyway, and a tricky boy. I, I did want to talk about going to Heidelberg, though. Sure. Because yes. this is this is the first choice that Philip makes for his own life. Yes. To go to Heidelberg. Yes. In defiance of some of the, uh, uh, in fact, probably all of the major um, authority figures and influences in his life, including, if I'm recalling my the chronology of the book correctly. His lover slash mother figure. Yes, yes. Uh, what's her name? Mrs. Uh, or Miss? It's not, she's not a Mrs. She's a Miss. Yeah, she's a Miss. Because she was a spinster. Um, ah, why can't I remember her name? Because she's the first one. Um, yes. Uh, the one who deflowers him. The one who there's like a multi-page. Thank you for putting the word deflower in this podcast. You're welcome. Um, the one who there's like a multi-page. Uh, uh, debate between him and his uncle and his aunt over how old she actually is. Yes! Yes! Her actual age is impossible to determine. Which, like, literally makes it impossible to determine, to determine whether she's, like, the correct age to be his lover or the correct age to be his mother or where in between she might be. Yes. She's definitely older, but that's all you can really tell for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um... So we're going to ta start out every episode of this of this uh, run on of human bondage. We're going to start at talking about Oedipal complexes, right? Obviously. Every single one. Obviously. Okay, yeah. just making sure. Well, okay, I, I do kind of want to talk about that a little bit since we're talking about what's her name, and I can't remember her name, dang it. Um, it's in the book. I know it is, and I'm not finding it. <laughs> but uh, so how would you characterize how... Every female character is described, besides motherly, um, in physical appearance, in this book. Well, that's impossible to say. Impossible to say. Yes. Okay. Because each and every char female character in this book is described two ways. 
Okay, okay. And in they're described as being incredibly beautiful. Uh-huh. And each and every same character who is described as being incredibly beautiful is also described as being hideous and repulsive. In yes, one way or the other. thank you. And that is, those descriptions are in direct inverse relationship to whether Philip is in their presence or not, or like how in their presence he is. I want to say, yep. I'm not, I would not stake my life on this claim, but I want to say at one point, maybe even in Heidelberg, a female character gets uglier in the course of a description where he's walking up to her. Yep. Yep. From a distance, she's beautiful. Yep. I was trying to think of that exact thing, too. But because, yes, Philip idolizes women when he's not in their presence. Yes. But then as soon as they're gone, yeah, as soon as they're gone, he he idolizes them. But then as soon as he sees them, he notices all their flaws and hideousnesses and stuff, and they're ugly. With the exception of one. There's only one woman who has no physical flaws in this entire book. Do you know? Do you know who it is? It's Sally. Okay. See, I was trying to decide how cheap you were being with this question. And the cheaper that I thought you were being, the more I was going to say either his His mother mother. or his aunt. Sure, sure. But I didn't think that's where you were going with it, but I couldn't remember. Is Sally never... never, She never has physical flaws. Never physical flaws. Is she not described as... Too like too thin or nope. bony or something. Nope, she is the opposite of bony. She is fleshy and wait, which one is Sally? Sally's the one he marries at the end. Oh, okay. Never mind. I was thinking of the one that the the one that destroyed his apartment. Oh, that's Mildred. Yeah. No, Mildred, Mildred is, and is, Sally is very absolutely, similar sounding names. Of course, yeah, it's easy to mix those up. Yeah. No, Mildred is described in, as maybe the ugliest of the women. But yeah. the one that he idolizes the most. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. And um, just just a fantastically healthy uh, oh, way to, yeah. to think about yeah. so I, anyone, really. Yeah. I, we're, we're, we're leaving the chronological order of things here a That's little okay. bit. But um, so talking about this, there, there, there are two ways to look at this, I think. Maybe more. Uh, but two that are forefront of my mind. When he's talking, when he's viewing women this way and ultimately marries the one who has no physical flaws. Right. One is just a superficial sort of putz. He finally found the, the actual beautiful woman. Finally, yeah. beautiful. Right. But even then, like, the only flaw she has is that he explicitly says he does not love her. Right. But that... <laughs> Love to him and is is a is an interesting thing. Yeah, speaking of like unhealthy psychological complexes. Yeah. Like we could spend we could write an entire academic paper on his conception of love. Yeah. And at no point would it be similar to a realistic or healthy conception of what love is. No, absolutely not. When he says he loves or doesn't love someone or something, he does not mean what you think he means. He, I, I don't think he understands what he himself means. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It, it, it ties right into the, the, the title of human bondage. It's, it's bondage to desire, bondage to passion, and it's something that he wants, and he ultimately winds up idolizing the feeling of desire or wanting a thing. It, it's the wanting of a thing that gives meaning to his life. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's, that is his conception of how much he loves someone is directly tied in to how much he desires them in mm-hmm, some way mm-hmm. or another. Right. Which is probably why the minute he gets into um, uh, uh, the presence of whoever he he has a thing for currently he instantly like starts questioning everything and and in his mind stops loving them yes because he's no longer desiring them because the desire is uh, at least part of it is fulfilled yep um and so he doesn't have the feeling anymore that he associates with love right right yeah that's interesting um i think you may have been going to say something like this but you said there are two ways that you could think about uh, how he 
you could think about how he thinks about Sally. Yes. And the one is that that superficial one where it's like, oh, well, I finally found someone I always consider beautiful, Mm -hmm. um, and that never goes away, so I better marry her. The other way is the tail wagging the dog, where Mm -hmm. possibly he always finds her beautiful because he actually loves her. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That he he finally just, you know, gets over himself an extent. Yes. And like he doesn't think he loves her. Right. But he actually does. Right. And that like because it's not what he has conceptualized as love. Right. But he really does love her. And so he doesn't see any physical flaws in her. He sees her perfection and and it does kind of the the way it resolves, the way the whole book resolves in that way is kind of an attack of this is what you want so settle for right. it <laughs> you know because he's planning a trip to spain and then to other places at this point and there's a scare he thinks sally thinks she's pregnant and stuff right um and he's like oh this is gonna ruin my life i'm stuck here now i have to marry her and right. i mean she's fine but i guess uh fine all right i'll do this and then the more he thinks about that the more he likes that idea of marrying her right uh until she says oh it was a false alarm and then he's like no but I want this. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and so settles and marries her anyway. It's Although, a, you know, we don't actually see the marriage. It's just implied that that's where it's going. Presumably. Like, it's pretty explicitly but, yeah. implied that unless yeah. something major changes. Right. But that's um, the track it's on at the end. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, that that's one thing about, about a book like this carrying off any kind of traditional... Uh, uh, you know, to reference last episode, traditional sort of... Uh, stage-like conclusion is that you've seen so much at this point that you almost can't believe that once the book leaves off, some other thing isn't going to interrupt it. Yeah. Even though mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have a specific reason to do right. it. Right, right. Um, I've suspected, and this is a complete digression, but like Thomas Pynchon, for example, and other like novelists that are truly considered among some of the greats, um, when they write really long novels the longer they get the more that the novel seems to just stop often okay and i sometimes wonder if it is that phenomenon that like the more the more of the story that there is the harder it is to tie everything in it together into one single sure, thing sure at least without it feeling sort of cheap yeah but I don't know that that applies to this this one very specifically. So uh, not necessarily. But you can cut this part out. No, <laughs> but no, it, it it is you you see a pattern with Philip that continues, and there's some evidence that that pattern is going to change at the end. Yes. Uh, yes. And so that's. And I think that's all you can hope for. That, yeah, and that's that's enough tying off line. of the end. Yeah, yeah, that's, and in a sense, any less than that would would feel cheap but any more than that would might also feel cheap yeah it might yeah. be jk rowling and the and the uh epilogue to um <laughs> the last harry potter book sure sure yeah with the the very non-euphonic names of children yes anyway um this is not this is still not the harry potter podcast no it's still not but um yeah no that so that's 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 a uh just an interesting feature that he's got this, you know, talking about the tale of his loves um, <laughs> as he goes through all these women and then it changes with Sally at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah it's and true. part There's... of that, I wonder too, whether part of that might be as weird as it sounds. He knew her as a child. When okay. she was a child and he was an adult. Yet yeah. He still perceives her in a motherly way. Because she acts as a mother to the the other children, to her siblings, and to him. Right. But, but it starts with him perceiving her as a child. There's a certain amount of... I'm trying to phrase this so I don't get myself in trouble, but mm. instead, here we go. Um, <laughs> there's a certain amount in a, in a relationship between, like, an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah. There's a certain amount of what could be facetiously called mothering that a younger sister often does mm-hmm. but it's still a diff very different relationship than an actual mother-son relationship mm-hmm. um and obviously this is sounding very incestual but like psychologically from what i understand often 
romantic relationships grow out of a like brother sister esque relationship between two people who yeah. are not actually related. So like the psychology there is very close in some completely non creepy ways. That, yeah, um, yeah, and and that's kind of what I'm getting at too. Like it, we could phrase it in very creepy ways. Yeah, but and it, you know uh, you could you could do sort of what I what I might call a creepy reading of this. Definitely. And it wouldn't necessarily be wrong. No. I just, or, or at least not inherently ridiculous. No. I just would also like to point out that you can do like a non-creepy reading of this. And Quite that easily. also is not ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that might be part of what feeds the, the perception he has of Sally. Yes. And, and his actual love for her is, yeah, it, it it is genuine. It is something that sure matures. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's interesting when when uh before the most recent um set of set of things we said uh I forget what it, what remark of yours it was that prompted it, but it made me think that like before Sally, in all of his relationships, he's claiming that he. He loves these women, yes, but he's acting like someone would if they didn't. Yes, and with Sally, he claims that he doesn't love her, yep. but he's acting like someone would if they did. Yes, absolutely. Um, he is, and he is a contradiction in that way. Well, it's, which it's it's he himself, yeah, is a contradiction, but I think it's very carefully built into the narrative. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. don't think it's it's mom, the author contradicting himself no um because i think a, a running theme throughout this book that you can see not only in the romantic relationships but in the intellectual like relationships and trajectory yep. um that often what people say and the way they behave are opposite yeah almost you know the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak speaking yeah. of how biblical this book is right um besides the fact that the whole thing is ecclesiastes um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, no, and and that makes the characters human, right? With their real bondage, um, and yeah, it, I think it's it it is intentionally written that way, and it it, yeah. it enriches the novel. Sure. I think, um, to make the characters that real. Right. Was there anything else you were gonna say on that? Not necessarily. Okay. I've got a lot of thoughts running through my head, but if you've got something specific, well, I was, I, yeah, I was gonna say I have a question for you okay. if you if you don't mind another uh, jump. So since uh, we're we seem to have sort of fallen into talking about Philip's loves on mm-hmm. this episode, um, maybe next episode we could we can talk more about the intellectual yeah. life. Or maybe in three minutes we'll start talking about we'll that. We'll see because, where the winds carry um, us. This podcast is very, very disciplined. Yes. Um, I think I say on the Patreon it's a very strict podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But now I forgot what I was going to say altogether. Oh, Loves. okay. So thank you. Um, so we, we skipped to talking about Sally. Yeah. I assume because of how awful his relationships with Mildred oh. and... The Nora. girl in Paris. Oh, the girl in Paris. Uh, Fanny Price. Yeah, Fanny Price and Nora. Nora. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that that one is maybe the most scarring to me. Really. It. Scarring okay, may not be the right word. Maybe the most miserable. Miserable, sure. Though I don't even know because like it, it's miserable in different ways. It's all. It's like it's the one I want to kick him in the temples the most yes. over. Yes. Because I both both scarring and miserable. As far as superlatives go, Mildred might almost have to take the cake on that. Yeah. Um, and also whatever his first love is, even that one is. I was I was I was gonna say the I one think, he ghosts. Yes. Um, I think we maybe skipped to Sally out of a a sort of subconscious defensive instinct. <laughs> sure. Because of the misery of his relationship with the one he ghosts, with Nora, with Mildred, um, mm-hmm. with Fanny Price, mm-hmm. um, and. Wilkinson. Yes, Miss Wilkinson. How could we forget that extremely euphonic name? Yep. So, um, that said, uh, this is a book about bondage, so let's dive into the misery. Um, yeah. Uh, please make that the sentence that you cut out and put at the top of the episode. Dive into 
or or make this a sentence that you do that with. Mm-hmm. Um, now I forgot what I was gonna say again. Okay, or make that the sentence that you do that with. That, that should be on our T-shirt. <laughs> Michael and Ethan, I forgot what I was gonna say again. <laughs> uh, oh. I almost fell into your trap there, sell, but I didn't. Sell that right alongside the Nihilus blankets. Yes, uh, we could sell a Nihilus blanket. With that on it. There you go. Oh, oh, dear. So good. So, I was reading this book. Uh, we we uh, took a, a vacation um, with my parents uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and my mom was, was uh, every time she looked across the room and saw me with that book, she'd sort of, sort of give me this, like, sympathetic look. Like, speaking, speaking of Oedipal complexes, here I am bringing up my mother out of a clear blue sky and talking about her sympathetic looks, but, um, she, you know, sort of the way that a mother will look at a child of hers who is like, has the flu or some <laughs> other sort of suffering that they would like to relieve, but they can't, they just have to yeah. let them go through it. Um, and so she and I were talking about this book, uh, appropriately slash inappropriately enough. I promise I'm going to leave this thread, um, eventually, but, <laughs> please do. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, I, I was wondering if she had had read it, because she did she did uh, some time as an English minor, I think, when she was in college. So um, some of the books that I read that like very few other people have read, she has read. But um, she had not read this book. She had, however, seen the film version ah, with Betty Davis. Okay. Um, I I don't suppose you've seen the film. I have not. I honestly, it crossed my mind to dig it up. I'm sure it's in the library system. Sure. And like watch it in preparation for this uh mm-hmm. for this run, but I completely failed to do that. Um. But the the conversation with my mother, she said, "Yeah, I remember Betty Davis as that awful woman." That awful woman. And I was like, "Mom." You're gonna have to be a lot more specific because <laughs> there are like five of them. Yep. Um, and I would guess Mildred. Okay, yeah, I was literally starting to say I'm gonna let you guess, but okay, you just went ahead without me as per freaking usual. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're right as per. No, I don't want to give you that credit. Um. <laughs> anyway, so yes, apparently, further questioning. Um, it does seem to have been Mildred. I was like, did she work in a shop and? Was she literally the worst, even though there were a bunch of other worst ones? Um, but the question to number two was, I don't know, because there was only the one. And the answer to number one, though, was yes. And so this is this is the the question that I'm ambling towards, um, is what do you think of the fact that, again, neither of us have seen this film, so it's like even more speculation than usual, but at least the film focused so much on Mildred that my mom could only remember her. Sure. Um, and to the point that my mom insisted that there weren't any other like major female characters yeah. in the film version. Sure. What does that What does that tell you, if well, anything? Um, it, it makes perfect sense to me because Miss Wilkinson appeared on the scene and was kind of a prop for him, and then he ghosted her, and she's gone. Right. Uh, Fanny Price just kind of swept in and out, uh, in by no seeking or interest of his. Right. Yeah. Um, then um, Nora was uh, a fun fling for him, and and you know, I I think he really fun fling and also the best thing that ever the happened. Best thing to that him. happened to him at all. Yes. Um. But oh, she would have been great for him. But. Uh, that, and that's that's maybe the point there too. There, there's a period in the novel where Nora and Mildred are kind of set against one another, and that's where he treats Nora the most abominably, right? Uh, preferring Mildred to her. Yeah, um, because he's also the worst. He is the worst. Um, but uh, the 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 distinction is drawn that Nora loves him and he doesn't love Nora. He loves right. Mildred and Mildred doesn't love him. Right. And so that's that's why Mildred becomes the focus. It's because she's the one that he loves, whatever that means to him. Sure. He loves Mildred. He wants Mildred. Everything is about Mildred. And further, I will say the only Mildred is the only other character we get a chapter from her perspective on. Yeah, that is true. Every chapter of the book is from Philip's perspective. We get one chapter of Mildred's perspective, and yeah. she's the only one who gets such a chapter. Yeah. Um, and so that would that would be why. 
um, the the film does the same thing um, and makes her such a central character. And I think that's it, an interesting thought. Go ahead, finish here. And, and that that that's intentional too, because Mildred is something that Philip does need to get over. It, sure. She is, she is the final passage for him to get through. She. Sure. She goes through all this crap before he himself suffers through the crap of poverty and, and needing to work in a shop and all of that right. and degrade himself and, and such. Um, and he needs to get through this aspect of, you know, he does offer her, you know, as as cynical as we can be about the, the transactional nature of the, the gift he gives her of, here, live with me and just, you know, be my servant. Right. My unpaid servant, I'll give you room and board. Um, it, it was really nice thing for him to give to her, and she threw it back in his face. Yeah, uh, because she misinterpreted it, right? Partially, but um, he needed to go through that of you know actually offering her love at that point when he insists by that point that he doesn't love her anymore. She right. disgusts him, but he is actually offering her love if we use love synonymously with grace, right? Uh, and he needs to go through that, seeing that rejected before he then can appreciate love that is given to him. Sure. And and see that. Sure. So it's almost so it does it makes sense to you that maybe if we are uh taking the six hundred and eighty page novel or six hundred page novel and yeah. uh condensing it down into a two hour film that makes any sense. Yeah. So you've got hundred and twenty pages of screenplay. Right. Um that you know, maybe if you if you have to sort of centralize something, the the whole Mildred arc is is mm-hmm. in well, a sense is the microcosm and of this. She recurs too, arc. yeah, uh, and then haunts him later as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, even when she does finally disappear, and I think I I can't remember if the language actually says it, but I think he says that's the last time he saw her several times. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I think <laughs> until so. the actual time he does see her for the last time. Yeah. Um, then, you know, he still, like, sees her, but thinks he sees her and doesn't actually. Like, there are women yeah, yeah, who yeah. sees that he thinks, oh, is that Mildred? No. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So she, she lives in his subconscious. Sure. That's interesting. Uh, uh, do you remember the movie Up in the Air? Did you ever see that movie? I don't think I did. Um, it features George Clooney as someone who basically corp, like, large corporations hire to fire people like he he specializes in freelance firing like mass firing people essentially um and i guess i'm gonna give this first i'm gonna give a recommendation as a very good movie um that i think kind of i think it got nominated for oscars like uh you know the year that it came out and i kind of haven't heard a whole lot about it since then but um like it i i don't think it deserves to disappear into oblivion it's when i get an urge to rewatch periodically so first i'm gonna say if you haven't seen it gentle listener go see it and then i'm gonna say spoiler alert i guess i'm sorry michael but eh. um anyway that's the exact arc that george clooney's character in that movie follows hmm. is that he starts out as sort of a you know sort of a cynical like like cold-blooded person like the type of person you'd expect to be someone who fires people professionally um but he first allows himself to like go into a a sort of open himself up make himself vulnerable like he meets someone that he uh finally thinks here's a person that i can like care about and he sort of lets himself do that um and then he gets rejected like that's the the flip into the either the climax or like the flip into the third act in this movie is that he finally lays it all on the line and sort of if you know your romantic comedies like you're expecting this to be you know yeah the uh i'm just a a boy standing in the rain kind of moment and she rejects him brutally Mm -hmm. um but i think it ends up being that that ultimately makes like redeems his character by the end that's awesome and he doesn't have like a um like a you know a sarah or sarah Mildred. no no the sally. sally thank you um all these female names look alike to me um 
he you know he doesn't have a Sally in that in that movie to show sure. right, a happy dating mob, but it almost like doesn't matter. Um, right. I think in that film. Uh, so and and I remember at the time I remember like watching this. I may I may have watched it like a few times around when it came out. Like it it kind of profoundly affected me at the time. And I remember uh, writing a long email to a friend about that arc and having noticed it in a couple of other movies and now i can't remember what those movies were um now like this is the first time i've ever had an urge to like dig up a long email i wrote someone like 10 years ago (laughs) because that's almost always like a worse idea than digging up like a work of fiction that i wrote 10 years ago Mm -hmm. um i i almost want to see if i can find that the other the other thought I had while we were talking about Philip's loves, um, and I was saying that Nora is the best thing that ever happened yes. to him, um, and that like, I I I so here here was my train of thought. Nora is the best thing that ever happened to him, and I am Team Nora over Team Sally. And yeah, then oh yeah. Also, I realize that if you just just got a like a copy of this text into Microsoft Word. And you put in just a few, like, immortals with sparkly skin. <laughs> this could be the next novel that a young Ethan would read in college in order to connect with a girl that he liked and would then despise himself for. Funny. This is basically intellectual twilight is what this novel is. Oh, man. Please don't oh, ask me to defend man. that statement. See, okay, now, I, <laughs> I, I see where you're coming from with that. And here's something I want to say, too, about um, this being my second read of it. My first read, I absolutely hated that he ended up with Sally. Okay. I hated it. I wouldn't say I hated it. Just that Nora's better. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted him to find Nora. Because something had been set up earlier with Mildred that she got married and was out of his reach, but then her husband flaked, and then she was back in his reach. Nora escaped him by marrying someone else, so it's like, that could change. Right. She could come back. He could find her again. Um, And so that's what I was hoping for at the end of the book. It didn't happen. Oh, interesting. Um, But... um, uh, th- that was my first read. My second read, I remembered the feeling of disappointment in the end that way. Sure. And that, I think, did something to color my experience this time, that I knew I would be disappointed. And so when it came to it, when he did marry Sally, I was like, oh, no, that's good. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I did appreciate it better this time around. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that I, if I personally met these women i would a hundred percent make things work with nora if they possibly ever possibly could yep i do think that she was way too good for philip yes absolutely because philip is an ass yeah and and just needs to get over himself um which here's here's a point i don't know if he does at the end yeah that that's something i was gonna bring up um at some point, I was I was maybe saving it till the next episode, but who who knows? Yeah, I mean, you you can see from this very meticulous plan sheet. Oh yes. that I've mm-hmm. laid out here. This clear we have digressed Excel spreadsheet of topic discussions per episode. Yes, <laughs> with with a beat by beat, minute by minute, yep. uh, mm-hmm. laid out topics. Um, if the gentle listener were to ever require a copy of the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, first of all. They would know why we called them the gentle listener. Um, yeah, it's true. And second of all, you could go to, I think it's book six, towards the end, where uh, the narrator, Tristram, lays out how, like, in diagram form, lays out how he tried to tell each of his his volumes in a straight line uh-huh. and ended up completely <laughs> failing to do that. <laughs> um, and it, so it's these, like, squiggly oh, you know, yeah. lines that sort of go all over the page. And that is what I think about at least once per episode on this podcast. Yeah, that's that's what this podcast winds up being. But anyway, that said, since you brought it up, does he get over himself in the end? And this is this is where we talked about the pattern of his life a little bit. Yes. Um, and part of that pattern, you know, the the pattern of his his loves for one instance, um, but the pattern of bondage. 
Yes. Uh, where even from a very young age, he he has an experience and feels free. And it's this, yes. at last I'm free. And it's not too much longer until he's dealing with another bondage. Yes. And then we get another, at last I'm free. And then another bondage. And it's that same pattern over and over and over again until finally he does get to this uh, point with Sally. And now it's freedom at last. At last he's finally free. And yes. when that comes in, it rings hollow because it's it happened does. so many times before. No, you're not actually free. You're still bound. You're right. still bound to the same thing. Well, and here's... And, and I think it is... Ultimately, I think it is a perfectly ambiguous ending. That yes, way. it is the poet or the pendulum, mm-hmm. or the pit or the pendulum. Poet or the pendulum is a Nightwish song. Um, anyway, uh, still good. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's the lady or the tiger. Yep. Essentially, except you have to read six hundred and eighty pages to get there. Right. Um, at least the lady or the tiger guy gave it to you in five. Um, <laughs> not that I'm bitter. Anyway, uh, yeah, it does. It does uh, potentially ring hollow, and you know, one of one of the uh, I can't find a better phrase. One of the bondage patterns in this book mm-hmm. um, is closely related to what you said. That idea of of um, I'm free. Oh wait, no, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, and and related to that, what he's doing, what he's trying to accomplish that leads him to all these moments of perceived freedom, what he's trying to accomplish is to essentially break out of the mold that his uh, um, uncle and aunt would have liked to pour him into. Yes. Essentially, um, they have a whole, you know, uh, idea of life, you could say, even a philosophy of life set up for him that has very little to do with with what i would call christianity or or you know spirituality right um other than as a prop or a a a, you know one act of the script (laughs) of this life yeah yeah or even like a hat to go with with the rest of this outfit um it's a a this, you know, they they want him to go off and become a doctor. Well, first of all, he even starts much younger. They want him to go to the right prep school, yep. um, go to the, the, you know, right upper level school, go to the right university, get into the right profession, yep. marry a good English girl, yep. um, you know, settle in. Uh, I forget. What do they want? Do they want him? To, they want him to become a vicar is the, first, the plan A, right? Well, he says he wants to be a vicar. That's right. He comes up with that idea. But they're they're thrilled school. about it. Yep. And, and, and doctor like, is yes, this is perfect. Yeah, and then doctor is like, Doctor's okay, if you can't be a vicar, yep. mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then he decides he wants to go off to Germany. And they're like, no, why would you do that? And he right. does. And then he's like, ah, I'm done. I'm leaving. And they're like, why can't you stick with it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so they're they're trying to pour him into this very specific like cultural and economic mode mm-hmm. um we'd call it being middle class today yeah right or or upper middle class i don't know but but um essentially all of his attempts at freedom are attempts to break that mold or mm-hmm. or jump that track to get off the you know what he perceives as bondage mm-hmm. um excuse me and uh but then as as we've said a few times now Every attempt to do that lands him in some other kind of bondage. Yep, which um, I would argue is ultimately the same bondage. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know that's even even in his uh, uh, attempts at spiritual freedom of, yep. of becoming an atheist, he finds himself acting like someone would if they were a Christian. Yep, still trapped in the same morality and uh, and even behavior. if yeah, and even if he's not a, there's no alternative. Like his yep. his one, you know drunkard of a of a friend essentially says like you either have to be a complete cad a complete you know criminal or whatever or you have to like act like you would if you were a christian Mm -hmm. um and you know you can you can argue about sort of social structures of the time and you know the idea that that uh alternatives had not been developed or articulated yet except that you know 
Lucretius wrote on the nature of things before Christ was born. <laughs> um, so, you know, the more you know about philosophical history, the more difficult it becomes to claim that there were not alternatives, even in, in you know, the 1900s. Yep. Um, but, or the 1800s, whatever. Uh, but what he ends up doing, especially in sort of the back half of the book, is hitting this peak of attempts at freedom and then sort of shambling backwards into yep. a life that in at least its sort of outward trappings or its uh, its general structure greatly resembles the one that his his aunt and uncle wanted for him in the first place. Right. And he becomes a doctor. Yep. He gets at least engaged and presumably married to really a good English girl. Almost almost like the archetype of a good English girl. Yep. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's a little lower class than they could have hoped, but as long as he's a doctor, like that'll sort it's of fine. equalize yep. for him. Mm-hmm. Um So, what I'm saying there is there are sort of two ways to read that. Sure. Um the one is sort of goes along with the title of the book of Human Bondage. To say that no, he just he can you know like a like a bear caught in a bear trap he can flail and wrench all he wants all he does is work himself deeper into the trap. Mm-hmm. You could say that at at one point and just say that he ends up there because you know everything is predetermined. Um, mm-hmm. Oedipus will always sleep with his mo- mother, um, mm-hmm. and you know he will always have ended up in this life. Or, um. You, there's an alternative reading, uh, and that's that even though he ends up in this this uh, place that is at least very similar to the one he tried to escape from, it's a better place for him having tried to escape from it. Sure. In other words, he's been presented with, you know, I I can never remember the his name, but you know his his friend who literally drinks himself to death with Cronshaw. Yeah, Cronshaw drinks himself to death with eyes wide open. Yep. Says on multiple occasions, like... like no, I'm not going to give up the drink. <laughs> yeah, like, I should give up the drink. Like, this is going to kill me, but I'm not going to do it. Yep. Um, you know, he Philip's been presented with that alternative. He's been given choices and taken choices along the way um, that have led him here. And yep. I always say that doing the, you know, doing something that you don't want to do because you feel like you're trapped into it versus doing that exact same thing uh, because you are making a conscious choice with knowledge that you have a different choice. Mm -hmm. The second alternative is a mentally healthier and almost more triumphant place, even if the outcome would be the same either way. Sure. Yeah, I see that. So I think you can read it either of those ways. And and I think that's intentional. Um, I mean... pretty obviously intentional i'm i i'm convinced uh with a lot of the read it two ways sort of things that you can do with this book and i don't know how much of it i want to get into this in the 11th hour here yeah uh, right. this episode but uh the 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 aspect of the atheism if we want to take that just to the the spiritual aspect of the character itself I think there's a way you could read this book as the triumph of atheist morality, and you could sure. also read it as the the mockery of an atheist. Yes, uh, yeah. in a lot of ways, and that's tied too to just the way the narrator treats Philip, and that sure. comes through the prose style here. I think because the prose style being so very bland, uh, understated, just you know, yeah, saying words, I wouldn't say bland, but understated. The is... understated is maybe the most yeah appropriate term for it but the the way it comes across is is almost a walter cronkite sort of trustworthy narrator yes. sort of thing yes that you get he's just you could read this reporting. as a nude report yeah nude yeah, report. yeah yeah nude report um <laughs> that's what we're going to do <laughs> after, the after the episode yeah uh no so that when it does that and it has philip as the primary character here that's coming through the natural reaction is, I think, to see things through Philip's eyes. And therefore, to have your Philip's experience be your experience in the novel. But I think the subtler thing that Mom is doing with that narrating style with Philip is actually poking fun at Philip. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Not only just pointing out the stupid mistakes he makes, 
Right. But even the the inner turmoil he has, bringing that out naked, screaming into the light, right, is is accomplished by that narrating style. Yeah, and, and so it, it's it's that same duality of you experience this with Philip while you can examine it. <laughs> right. Um. The the thing that that uh, that reminds me of, uh, as as maybe my last remark here, is um, in when I was in grad school. The one uh, creative writing class I got to take at a grad level, we talked about um, time distance as an important aspect of like the the narrative voice or the narrative point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, you you always talk about narrative point of view as first person, third person, um, stuff like that. But but uh, the the element of how close the narrator seems to the things that he's he yeah. or she is narrating is almost much more interesting and maybe more important than uh, um, some of the other more obvious considerations. Um, and this, th- you know, this comes out really clearly in a first-person narrative. Yeah. You know, you have, like, a, a, a narrative about something that happened to me three days ago is going to be very different from something that happened to me three years ago or 15 years ago. You know, three days ago, it's going to be very current. All of the emotions are going to still be there. Right. Three years ago, you know, I've maybe had some time to reflect on it. So maybe yeah. the highlights are going to be there, but I'll be at a little bit of a distance. 13 years ago or 15 years ago, like, you know, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm much more likely to be critical and maybe to be um, yeah. um, sort of bemused or uh, have, a, have a separation from that. Yeah. Um, and I think... For for what you just said, this goes back to that uh that that preface or forward, forward. whatever he calls it yeah, um, where mom talks about how he the first time he tried to write this novel he was very young like maybe yeah. much closer to the age that Philip is at the end of it yeah and that when he essentially from what from what I understand in the forward essentially completely rewrote the same novel. He was at least 15 years older, if not more than that, mm-hmm. um, which gives him, I think, probably that some of that distance to be able to do the thing that you just said, where he he has like a wryness to him, where just because Philip thinks something very intensely or feels it very intensely doesn't mean that the narrator has to be Approve right. Yes, be right on top of it with Philip. Yeah. Um, and I was gonna say, you know, it's obvious in first person. You can still do it in third-person narration. Sure. It's just um, more difficult to identify, maybe more difficult to quantify. Um, but I think here where Mom explicitly is writing an autobiographical novel, um, I do think that's maybe key to interpreting it. He's he's had some distance from the event, so he can be um, more, maybe more honest and certainly more sort of critical and... and uh, yeah. Um, not accept that Philip is right just because he thinks he's right. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think that's a very good note to end on. I I would say so, unless you had anything else. But it not, sounds like you're good for the moment. Point. Yep. Not not that won't take us another hour. Exactly. I hear you. So thank you once again, gentle listener, for for uh, staying with us here. Next time we will be reading part three of on human bondage <laughs> or this will be part three of our reading of human well there, there will be a special bondage. in between after this one we'll have that's a, right a next break. time we will have a special on this audio to be edited in later <laughs> that michael will definitely do uh-huh the tempest by william shakespeare um and now you know and that'll be what our special is on wow what a great idea we had for a special right isn't it though so, and then after that, we will be resuming of Human Bondage. Um, read along if you want, if you haven't already. If you're in the middle of it, keep on trucking. It <laughs> gets... It gets... It gets. It gets. <laughs> um, in the sort of motion-centric sense of that word. Uh, but definitely give us your feedback. Tell us how I am right, and this book is your classic English class slog, and Michael is wrong, unless you disagree and are also wrong with Michael. 
Um, you can do that do that feedback in the contact section of the of tapestryradio.org. Um, if you can put Scotch Talk in the subject line, that helps us uh, sort through our voluminous correspondence. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Uh, we are in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. Request to join. We'll let you in unless you're Fanny Price. <laughs> or Mildred. Mildred. I was going to say or Betty Davis, but I would let Betty Davis in. <laughs> um, also, we will do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we do condone plagiarism. Take every single thing we say, uh, turn it into your prof, and watch them first. Wonder how you somehow got stupider, <laughs> and then put you in plagiarism jail. Uh, but, Which every high school has. Yes, and college. And college. Um, but if you do uh, send us send us some homework, you might be our next special. <gasps> um, oh, snap. If you like this podcast, uh, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, our audio drama podcast, Pokemon Rollout, our... Pokemon United Tabletop RPG Actual Play Podcast. Very good. Did I miss a word? No, you just kind of got some out of order. Okay, that was that was what I was like the best I was hoping for. So sure. Uh, and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podkite. Mm-hmm. Podbean. Podbean. I know that exists. I think we're on that. Okay. I'm glad we're both not sure, being two out of the two people who would have put yeah. us on that. Um, but yeah, wherever you get it, please rate and review us. Um, unless your rating is anything other than five stars, in which case uh, they will tell us and you'll be deleted immediately. So it's don't true. bother. It's true. Um, yeah, we don't pay to advertise, so if you like us, uh, ratings, reviews, shares online, word of mouth, word of mouth. in person is really like that's the only way we spread and grow like a we, virus. That's mostly why we want you to, you know, plagiarize us so that other people know we exist. Yeah, so because I did say take every single word we say yep. and turn it into your prof, so they'll get to the end of your plagiarism and be like, oh, here's a here's a podcast I should check out, and yeah. also two other podcasts. Yeah. Um, it's great. I have a webcomic called Pin Porter Girl Detective. Uh, it has some very good art, and also there are words by me. Um, if you like fairy tales, if you like film noir, uh, probably if you do like Betty Davis and have, you know, caught the three mm-hmm. references I made to her so far, um, you probably like it. Or at least you stand a good chance. So check it out. It's free. What have you got to lose? Pin Porter Girl Detective on Google will get you right there. Mm-hmm. I'm on Michael? Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. I'm on Twitter at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. And so, just remember that it's our party until next time, and you'll cry if we want to. <laughs> yep. And that's how we do it. <laughs>
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.